Section two of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. Mala, parts three and four. Part three. I happened in the course of the next week to hear of Tarn from another source. Tarn had told me that his next neighbour was the farmer at Sandine, three miles away, and that they had had no dealings together. Now I knew little Parrot, the farmer at Sandine, very well. I had attended his robust and prolific wife on three natural occasions. I had seen the children through measles. I had done what I could for the chronic dyspepsia of his termagant aunt. I had looked after Parrot's knee when a horse kicked him. Perret was a ferret-faced man, a hard man at a bargain, and a very good man on a horse. Between farming and horse-coping he did very fairly well. He was the willing and abject slave of his wife and his numerous children. He was interested in medical matters, of which he had no knowledge whatever, and relished an occasional long word. So I was not surprised to receive a note from Perret stating, our Gladys seems to have omphitis, that he would be glad if I could call, and that he was my obedient servant. Tommy, the brother of Gladys, took back my verbal answer that I would call that morning. Sandine resembles Felonsdean in that both are hollows in the downs, and resembles it in no other respect. Sandine is approached by a definite and well-made road. Its farmhouse and little group of cottages have a cheerful and human look. The inhabitants are busy folk, but they find time to whistle and to laugh. Gladys Perrot, I found, was suffering from a diet of which the nature and extent had been dictated by enthusiasm rather than by judgment. I was able to say definitely that she would soon recover. Perrot came in from trouble with a chaff-cutter to have a few words with me. "'So it's not omphitis,' he said, with an air of relief. "'I should say it was a slight bilious attack, but I don't know what omphitis is. "'All I can say is that my poor grandmother died of it. "'Buried thirty-six hours afterwards. Had to be. Makes one careful. "'That's why I sent Tom down. He had cake at your place,' he said. "'If he asked for it, I shall have to pay him, to learn him manners.' I acquitted Tom. No, I said, that was my old housekeeper, trying to make a job for me. Perrot saluted the veteran joke heartily. I was up with your neighbours at Felonsdean the other day, I said. Ah, said Perrot grimly. Man ill? No, his wife's just got a baby. And you attended her? Very good of you. Vet's work, I should have called that. You don't know them, do you? Nor want. Not but what he and his dog did me a good turn once. If you like to take the message, sir, you can tell Tarn that Mr. Perrot of Sandine would be glad to give him five sovereigns for that dog. So I would, too, and not think twice about it. I'll tell him, I said. What was the good turn? I lost a couple of sheep, and that annoyed me, though they were marked and pretty sure to be brought back some time. Still, I was annoyed that night. You ask the missus if I wasn't. 
like a bear with a sore head said mrs perrot cheerfully well at half past nine i was just on going up to bed when there came a great barking outside and a scratching at the door it wasn't one of my dogs i knew though you may be sure they very soon chipped in i went out and there were my two sheep and tarn's big dog with them those sheep hadn't been hurried and scurried neither they'd been brought in nicely the dog wouldn't let me get near him he was what might be called truculent as some of the best of them are he was away again before you could say knife he's no sheep-dog said mrs perrot five pounds for the likes of him what would you say if i talked like that to my mind said perrot stolidly a sheep-dog is a dog that's clever and reliable at handling sheep and i don't care what the breed is i don't care if he's a poodle come to that tarn's dog looks like a cross between a retriever and a a elephant all the same he'd be worth five sovereigns to me and i'd back my judgment too tell you why i expected there was somebody with the dog and i wanted to do the right thing a drink for a master or sixpence for his man and i gave a halloa there was nobody within call for i went right out and looked he'd been sent in by himself and he'd made no mistake that's no ordinary dog no i said he's not i know him he's rather a friend of mine there and the missus says he's more like some wild beast oh they're all right when they've got to know you dogs are parrot followed me out to the car there's rather a queer thing he said but i know the medical etiquette doctors aren't supposed to talk well i said they're often supposed to talk but they don't do it then you can't tell me anything about that i don't know what to call it tabernacle perhaps at felonsdean i've seen nothing of the kind nor heard of it either what do you mean parrot could only tell me what ball had told him ball was a labourer whom parrot employed late in the previous october on a saturday morning ball had gone in to helmstone to deliver a horse that parrot had sold and drew his wages before he went he rode the horse in and was to walk back the purchaser of the horse gave ball a pint a friend whom he met by chance gave ball a quart a few minutes later ball gave himself another quart because he could afford it and started for home a carter who gave him a lift told him that he was drunk and though ball did not accept the theory completely he thought there might be something to be said for it it seemed better to him to roam the downs for a couple of hours before he faced the inquisitorial glance of mrs ball when he reached felonsdean he sat down to rest under some gorse near the crest of the downs before tackling the three miles home to sandine he fell asleep and when he woke shivering with cold it was midnight but he maintained that it was not the cold which woke him it was music of a sort there was a drum beating not loud but regularly at intervals a woman's voice was heard singing stopping short and then starting in again on it was ball's phrase to describe it the sounds came from what looked like an outhouse it had no windows but light streamed out from the open door and in the path of the light there was a gray smoke 
he crept very quietly and cautiously down to a point from which he might see what was going on in there the inside of the building was filled with the gray smoke but through it he could see many lighted candles candles as long as your arm and a kneeling figure he could not say whether it was man or woman in a long red garment the singing and drum beating had stopped and all was quite still then ball's foot slipped and sent stones rattling down the next minute ball was running for his life with so he maintained tarn's dog after him as ball got away it may be believed that either the dog was chained or that it was called off immediately by tarn himself i don't know what you make of it sir but it looks to me as if those tarns were romans said parrot mr parrot i said it doesn't do to take much notice of what a fuddled man thinks he sees perhaps not said parrot anyway it gave ball a good scare he's been teetotal ever since and talks of joining the plymouth brethren within a brief period from that day my visits to felonsdean ceased there was no longer any reason for them tarn accepted all that the law required he registered the birth of the child and he had her vaccinated the devotion of mala and himself to that child was beyond all question i repeated the very good advice which i had already given him but he refused to follow it i think he considered that he had already said too much and he quite obviously attempted to minimize it he said that perhaps he had expressed himself too strongly it was quite possible for a small family to live happily and cheerfully together even in so desolate a spot as felonsdean there was plenty to do mala had her baby and the house to look after he had the outdoor work if he wanted to see what the rest of the world was doing he could always go into helmstone there were plenty of hotels there where he could get a drink and a game of billiards when i told him what ball professed to have seen and heard he got rather angry it was all a lie ball had never been near the place but a few minutes afterwards he said i wish i'd let the dog get him it was all intended to be very reassuring but it was not candid and it was vaguely disquieting it occurred to me to pay a visit one night secretly to felonsdean to see if i could make out what was going on but my practice in helmstone was too heavy to leave leisure for nocturnal expeditions of that sort besides it was no business of mine tarn paid my bill he wanted to pay twice as much and i regarded the incident as closed if i were called in again i thought it likely that it would be to certify the lunacy of either tarn or his wife but the incident was reopened a little less than a year later and not in the way that i had expected part four in the following january i took a partner in my practice this was a step which i had long contemplated i was a bachelor making far too much money for my simple needs and working far too hard in order to accomplish it i also wanted time for my investigations into the cause and treatment of a certain disease these investigations have nothing to do with the story of mala and her husband and would not interest laymen i have no excuse but vanity for adding that they subsequently brought me some reputation my partner was a sound and able young man much interested in his profession 
and soon made himself liked and respected. My life became much easier and more comfortable. In the march following, about four one morning, I was awakened by the barking of a dog in the street outside my house. Presently I heard him scratching at my door. I hurried down, switched on the lights, and opened the door. I had thought of damage to my paint, and not of Tarn, of whom I had heard nothing for a long time. But it was Tarn's dog that lay on the pavement outside. I supposed at first that somebody at Felonsdean was ill, and that the dog had been sent to fetch me. But the dog's appearance did not bear this out. He had evidently come much further than the distance from Felonsdean to my house. He got up when he saw me, but the poor brute was so exhausted that he could hardly stand, and he looked as if he had been starved for days. I called him into the house and got food for him. He ate ravenously. I waited to see if he would try to get out again, but he seemed perfectly content to remain where he was. Finally he followed me upstairs to my own room, where he stretched himself on the hearthrug and almost instantly fell asleep. I was just about to switch off the light and get back into my bed again when I noticed the shining brass plate on the dog's collar. I bent down and examined it. On the brass plate, neatly engraved, were my own name and address. It looked as if the dog were to be mine in future. But why? What had happened? The dog established definitely his relations with the rest of my household next morning. He took no notice whatever of anybody who left him alone, but he would allow nobody but myself to touch him. Even my partner, who understood dogs and was fond of them, had to confess himself beaten. He was taking the round that morning, and I intended to walk up to Felonsdean with the dog. But the poor brute was still so stiff and footsore that I decided, after all, to take the car. He sat beside me, and I rather think that he knew where he was going. But he showed no excitement when the car stopped, and made no attempt to rush off to the farmhouse. He followed me quietly down the hill. A saddled horse was tethered in the courtyard, and the outer door was open. In the hall stood Mr. Parrot, with a penny notebook and a stumpy pencil in his hand. He looked up as he heard my step and greeted me with his usual heartiness. "'This is a surprise, Mr. Parrot,' I said. "'I didn't expect to find you here. I was looking for Tarn.' "'Afraid you won't find him, sir. They all cleared out yesterday morning. I've bought this place.' "'Bought it?' "'House and land, furniture and stock, everything except the dog and their clothes. It's a little speculation of mine, and looks like being a very good speculation, too.' I knew you were going to have the dog. He told me he meant him as a present to you. And, according to Tarn, I could never have done anything with him. Truculent. Too truculent. I didn't know he was leaving. How did it come about? Oh, he came round one morning three weeks ago and asked me if I'd buy his place. I said I'd buy that or anything else if the price were right and it was right enough because it was my own price. I came and went over everything and said what I'd give, and he never haggled. I paid my ten percent next day, 
and completed at the lawyer's in Helmstone, afternoon before last. Tarn was there. He was. What's more, we had a bottle of champagne wine at the Armada afterwards, at his expense, and he drove me back to Sandine in his car. Car? I never knew he'd got one. Only had it two months, he said. It's a bigger one than yours, sir, and I expect he'll lose money on it. For he told me he shouldn't take it over to France with him, and they're bad things to sell. Yes, I felt like one of the gentlefolk that afternoon, drinking champagne wine and sitting in a motor-car. He must be a warmer man than ever, I supposed. How was he looking? Well, he was quiet, and yet he was a bit excited, if you know what I mean. He'd new clothes on, oh, quite the thing. It's my belief that he's come into money unexpected, and that he and the two niggers, the wife and baby, are off on a jaunt together. I did not share Perrot's belief, but I said nothing. In France they're not too particular, so I'm told, said Perrot. I dare say niggers go down better there than they do here. Did you see the woman and her baby when you were here? No, they weren't shown and I didn't ask for them. I don't think they were in the house when I came, for I went into each room. But they must have come in by another way before I left, for I heard them in the next room to us. What's more, the baby was laughing, and the woman was sobbing. What was she crying about? Parrot laughed. Why, women will cry for anything. Toothache, perhaps. Maybe he'd been giving her a bit of a dressing down. I did not agree with Parrot's conclusions, but again I made no comment. Parrot had to get on his horse and ride back to Sandine. He confided to me that he'd got a tenant for Felonsdean already. Mrs. Lane was going to live there with her married daughter and her son-in-law. Mrs. Lane was Parrot's bad-tempered and dyspeptic aunt, and so far she had lived in Parrot's house at Sandine. But I haven't got room for her any longer, said Parrot. So she's taking her exiotus. I recommend exiotus to the philologist. Perrot had ridden off, and I was halfway up the hill to my car, when the idea struck me that I should like to have a look at the building which had been used for the curious rites that Ball had described, and I turned back again. I found the place. It stood apart from the house, and was boarded on the inside. That curious smell of bitter smoke still hung about it. At one end I could see that some sort of fitment had been removed, and there were splashes of candle-wax on the floor. Coming out into the sunlight again, I noted that Tarn had done a little levelling and road-making to enable him to get his car into Felonsdine from the lower side of the hollow. This would give him a greater distance to go if he were driving to Helmstone, but by the shorter route which I had taken the approach was quite impracticable for a car. And then, quite by chance, I noticed among the stunted trees of the orchard something white that at a little distance looked not unlike a big milestone. As I entered the orchard, the dog whined and lay down. I supposed that he was tired and left him there. A nearer view showed me a column about three feet square and about four feet in height, neatly built up of rough lumps of chalk. On the top of the column were a pile of ashes and charred wood. 
it was then that its resemblance to a sacrificial altar such as i had seen pictured in an old illustrated bible first struck me among the ashes something gleamed and sparkled i fished it out with a bit of stick it was a small circlet of soft gold evidently not european work and might have served as a child's bangle and my disturbance of the ashes had shown me other things i found an old wine case in one of the sheds and in this i placed all that i had found on the top of the altar the lower part of the ashes and the top of the altar were still quite warm from the fire i carried the case up to my car sweating with the effort and my hurry i put the case in the tonneau and covered it with a rug and then with the dog by my side i went home as fast as i could drive my partner had returned from his round and joined me in my examination of what was in the case incineration had been imperfect and we had no doubt whatever i could state confidently that on an altar in an orchard at felonsdean the body of a young child had been burned within thirty-six hours of the time of my discovery which was precisely twenty minutes past twelve on the morning of twenty-ninth march i returned at once to my car and drove to the police station where i gave my information the number and the appearance of tarn's car were well known a white man travelling with a negress cannot go anywhere in england without being noticed he and the woman had been in paris before and the man had admitted to perrot under circumstances which might have overcome his usual reticence that he was going to france the inspector who saw me felt sure that tarn would be found and the whole mystery cleared up in a very short time tarn and mala were never found they had been seen in the car in the very early morning of the twenty-eighth the car itself was found at malcolm cliffs an unimportant place on the coast about five miles from helmstone inquiries at ports gave negative results no negress accompanied by a white man had gone by any of the boats the only negress who had gone abroad bore no resemblance to mala and was satisfactorily accounted for the coroner was extremely polite to me at the inquest on the remains of the child he said that i had given my evidence in a most clear and open manner i had mentioned circumstances which i thought to be suspicious and of course it was my duty to mention them but still i had admitted fully and he thought it a most important point that both tarn and his wife were devoted to the child it made any theory that they had been guilty of the horrible crime of murdering the child seem very improbable tarn had married a negress and was very sensitive on the point he lived alone he hated any publicity it seemed to him more likely that the child died suddenly perhaps as the result of an accident when tarn and his wife were on the point of departure and that sooner than face the publicity and inquiry they had taken this quite illegal way of disposing of the body tarn was an educated man and he would know that what he had done was illegal he would be anxious to avoid detection and would probably change his plans in consequence 
he was also a wealthy man. The abandonment of the motor-car would not mean very much to him. Inquiries had been made on the supposition that Tarn and his wife had gone to France. But they might have gone elsewhere. They might have shipped from Liverpool. A negress with the help of a thick motor-veil, a wig, and grease-paints might easily conceal her race for a little while. The absence of any evidence from people at Melcombe Cliffs and the neighbourhood seemed rather to point to this. Tarn was a gloomy man of rather morbid and religious temperament. He had certainly said some extraordinary things, but the bark of a man of that type was generally worse than his bite. The cremation of the child's body was wrong and illegal, but the jury had nothing to do with that. There was really no evidence pointing to murder. On the contrary, they had heard that both parents were devoted to their child. An inconclusive verdict was given. It was on 27th March that the child was born. A year later, precisely, its body was burned. It may have been a coincidence. It may not. I, at any rate, have never been able to accept the coroner's comforting theory. I remember that negress too well, and the power that she and her horrible faith had over her husband. They loved their child, I believe. But in the propitiation of the power of evil, the dearer the victim, the more potent will be the sacrifice. They must have been insane in the end. And possibly the sea at Malcolm Cliffs still holds the secret of what became of them. End of section 2